You're listening to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Today, we're discussing one of my favorite topics, anxiety. We are speaking with Dr. Kathleen Smith. She's author of the new book, Everything Isn't Terrible, Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. There's one section at the beginning of the book that reminds me of my weekend, so I'd love to share it with you now. I like to think of my anxiety as a smoke alarm, she writes. It's annoying, but also important. A smoke alarm is designed to protect me from danger, but sometimes it will go off when I'm cooking and there's no real danger. When the alarm beeps, I do not run screaming out of the house. I don't beat it to death with a broom. I simply look around and see whether there's a fire. If there isn't one, then I reset the alarm. I understand that my smoke alarm is designed to be sensitive to protect me. It is my friend and it might save my life one day. Our alarm systems will vary in sensitivity based on our experiences in relationships, especially those within our families. Many of us have a sensitive alarm system installed in our brains. I am definitely one of the many that Dr. Kathleen Smith is referring to in the book. And speaking of perceived threats, so 5.55 a.m. Sunday morning, I wake up, I wake Adam up. I'm like, what is that beeping coming from? We realize it's in our sleeping toddler's room. He tiptoes in, which I love. So it's like, so there isn't this like, like massively loud sound emanating from the ceiling. He like tiptoes in. He can't reach the alarm. So he goes in the hallway for a chair and then it stopped beeping. And we're like, oh, deep sigh of relief. Both kids are still asleep. Then it starts beeping again. And so he gets the chair. He rips the alarm off the wall. Somehow Eliza is still asleep. We literally hug in the hallway. Like we've survived something major because, oh my God, this happened, but they're still sleeping. And then Eliza waddles out and she's in her little Wolino sleep sack. So she looks like Maggie from The Simpsons. So I pick her up and the three of us head back to our bed and we're cuddling and I scooch under my weighted blanket, which is supposed to help my anxiety. And she's so sweet because her little face is pressed against ours and it's really like a darling moment. And I'm like, oh, everything's okay. And I hear these like sirens in the background, and I'm thinking, God, there's crazy stuff going on in the world today. What is happening out there? Um, I'm just going to cuddle on my little baby's face and focus on this right now. And then I hear a big truck across the street, and I'm like, God, I can't believe they're starting construction this early on a Sunday. And then we hear a knock on the door. Adam looks out the window. It's like there's a parade on our street because the truck lights are so bright. And there are two firemen waiting for us. <gasps> Thank you, L.A. Fire Department, for showing up. I'm really sorry that it happened. Next time I won't have my phone on silent. We were sleeping. Anyway, sorry and thank you. I'm sure we'll get a bill. Um, so today we have an expert so that we can talk about our personal alarm systems that occasionally go awry. 
Uh, We're going to share some of the things we can do to calm ourselves. We look at the patterns that we fall into with our family members and in different relationships, and we look at the ways that we can show up differently. And instead of falling back into, let's say, our teenage selves, something I tend to do when I'm around relatives, Dr. Kathleen Smith has advice for how we can show up as our more evolved selves. I will be right back with Dr. Kathleen Smith. I promise I will make this up to you. It will be your favorite Uh, episode of all time. Uh, I'm going to start. I'm sure. I'm going to start here. Dear listeners, I want you to know what just happened as we began recording this episode. Four minutes into our conversation, I looked down and my recorder was no longer recording and it said that my SD disk was full. Oh my God. It's perfect. This is so meta. So Kathleen do the magic of your book and tell me that everything isn't terrible. (laughs) (laughs) This is a totally manageable problem. The stakes are very low. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Because I will tell you in my brain, of course I go into the storytelling that you talk about in the book of, you know, the, Oh, this is why it's terrible. Uh, the publisher will never send me another esteemed guest. Uh, you have others. I've blown my cover. Clearly, I'm a fraud. <laughs> the 230 and, episodes I've done are all a, a mistake. And in reality, I'm just pleasantly checking my email in the background. <laughs> yeah, because you're like a pleasant, happy, like very well-adjusted person. And I'm guessing part of that is because of the work you do as a therapist and also the work you've done for yourself. On Atomic Moms, we talk about relationships nonstop. The way I relate to parenting is relationship-based. It's different for me and my six-year-old and me and my two-year-old. And as we evolve and change, our relationships also change. And so there isn't this cookie-cutter one way of doing things at our house. And on the podcast, we also talk about you know, our relationship with our partners and our mom friends and our extended family. And, you know, I'm always dragging my own poor mother into the conversation because that's a really important defining relationship. And I was so excited when I got your book because your approach to anxiety is relationship-based. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So sort of this idea that if you just look at an individual you're really missing the bigger story about what's happening with their anxiety. You know, because if you ask a person most of the time, how do you know you're anxious, right? They say, oh, uh, well, I had negative thoughts or my pulse was racing, right? It's a very individual answer. But if you look at how you interact with your family or your coworkers or with your partner when you're anxious, it can really give you a better sense of uh, how that behavior is kind of getting in the way for you to actually calm down a little bit and be the person you're trying to be. Uh, Because, you know, we're human. We're social creatures. Uh, Our families, our organizations, you know, our friendships, um, we're trying to manage anxiety together. (laughs) We do things with each other that try, you know, that are our best attempt to calm things down as quickly as possible. And, you know, those things work remarkably well a lot of the time. Uh, but they don't necessarily reflect who we're trying to be as a parent, you know, or as a friend or as a partner. So it's really fascinating to kind of zoom out and not just look at yourself, but to look at uh, those relationship systems and see kind of what we all do when we're anxious. 
Yeah, so I would love to just plow straight into family dynamics. You give an example in the book of a wedding, and it reminds me of Atomic Moms a couple of years ago. I interviewed my cousin, who's a therapist, Emily Price, before we were going to a family wedding because I had so much anxiety about the potential family drama. It didn't help that it was the weekend of Trump's inauguration. (laughs) We were flying into D.C., actually. Anyways, I want to talk about these big family events where everything bubbles up because sometimes I'm just white-knuckling. Like, is is there going to be drama? Am I going to be the one to cause the drama? So how do we rise above that and, you know, bring everyone else up with us? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is we have to fail many, many times. <laughs> well, I've done <laughs> but, that. <laughs> but uh, but be curious about our failing. You know, I think what I always encourage my clients, you know, whether it's a holiday or, you know, a wedding or a graduation or whatever, is to make that their own kind of personal laboratory <laughs> mm-hmm. to really be curious about you know, the dance everybody does when they're uncomfortable or tense. And I think when people start to observe the bigger family system doing its thing, people don't seem as much like villains in the story. It just seems like everybody's kind of doing what they know best to calm things down, you know, even if it annoys you or rubs you the wrong way. Um, you know, and I, and paying attention to your part in that as well is really important. But I think the people who are able to be really curious about it and are able to laugh at themselves, you know, at, when they go in and they do exactly the same thing they've done, you know, a million Thanksgivings or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're able to start to give themselves at least, you know, a heartbeat or two um, of time to maybe think about, do I really need to do this? Do I really need to avoid this person? Do I really need to take over and try and control their behavior? You know, or is there a better, is there an alternative way of kind of being in the middle of my family, if that makes sense? I love this quote. Your family is high altitude training for anxiety. If you can be calmer in your family, you can do it anywhere, at work, on the subway, on a date, or when you're by yourself. Can you talk to us about the difference between distancing versus finding space? Distancing is our best attempt to kind of relieve the anxiety we feel in the moment. So it could be physically distancing yourself, but also uh, emotionally distancing yourself. So not sharing things about yourself that are important to you, that reflect your true self or what you believe or what you're passionate about, you know, only maybe talking about the weather or, you know, sports or something uh, with family as a way of kind of distancing yourself or like using your spouse as a buffer. I think we do that a lot of the time too, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but, you know, finding spaces, you know, that good work of setting boundaries and saying what you'll put up with and what you won't put up with, you know, and communicating that calmly to people. Uh, I think a lot of times we can trick ourselves into thinking that's what we're doing when we're really just anxiously distancing to calm down as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And what do you say to someone who is afraid of sharing themselves? Like I think of myself after college or, or even in college and you come home and you have these new parts of yourself or these new experiences or passions, but then there can be the fear of you know, sharing that with someone if they don't, if they might not be as excited as you, or if it seems like, oh, they'll just brush it off, or they just want you to be the old person you were before. 
in the dynamic. What do you say to clients who come to you that are like, okay, I am me 24-7, but then when I go home, I'm not me. I'm the me that grew up in this this relational system of the family. Sure. Well, I mean, first off, obviously, I wouldn't tell someone to put themselves in a situation that felt unsafe, right? But if if all the, the stakes are someone just disagreeing with you or kind of brushing it off, you know, I encourage people not to think of the goal as getting other support or getting their agreement. The goal is to be able to be your best self or to be your true self while in contact with other anxious humans. <laughs> and it, your family is the hardest place to do that. Um, and you will get pushback sometimes. But I think what happens over time is that people start to adjust to who you are and they start to calm down a little bit as well. Uh, but you can't necessarily expect that right away. If you're doing something or you're acting differently than you you know, might normally act, if you're sharing things that you have different opinions on than your family, right? There is that initial pushback. And I think the more people can kind of expect that and see that as the the system kind of doing its thing, trying to say, nope, you don't do this. We don't do this. This is how we keep things calm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is we, we only talk about this subject or you always agree with me and that's how we keep things calm. Um, you know, it requires a little bit of time for people to adjust to that new reality. So if you can cannot be surprised when people don't uh, support what you say or agree with what you're doing right away. I think it can can help you be patient as people sort of learn to to be with the new you. I love how you talk about you have a client named Grace and she has some therapy homework from you regarding her own mother and the ways that she tries to control her or fix her. I definitely have done that in the past. Like I'll get really excited about the idea of, you know, this great thing or listen to this podcast episode, mom, like that these <laughs> will change her, right? Which isn't fair to her. So what what do you say to the mom out there who is, you know, just feels like she's very entwined in her own mother and like what her mom is up to or should be doing or shouldn't be doing or who she should be voting for. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think so often we treat our parents as if they're extensions of ourselves and that their behaviors and, you know, their actions um, reflect badly on us. Right. But so we uh, don't treat them as separate people. We we act as if it's our responsibility to to manage their thinking or their behavior. And so the homework I gave this particular client was to just sit down and make a list of things that she thought uh, were her responsibility as an adult child. And what were the things that were not her responsibility? You know, and when she sat down and did that, she found that it was her responsibilities were a very short list uh, because her mom was a healthy, you know, ish capable person. And, you know, they were really things like be present in her life, listen, only give advice when asked, um, you know, share about myself and what's going on in my life. And really that was, you know, the end of the list. Um, and anything that involved trying to to manage her mom's thinking or behaving was, you know, it went on that opposite list of things that were not her responsibility. Uh, so I think just really sitting and, and thinking about that and writing it down can be useful for people because so often we've got our our hands in in that that opposite column. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am aware of how painful it is for me 
to feel like I'm being controlled or like what I'm doing isn't good enough or what I'm wearing isn't, you know, up to par or, you know, my mother loves to be like, do you have a lint brush? That's like one of her favorite (laughs) things to ask me at all times. And it drives me crazy because it feels like I'm getting picked on. But then, you know, if I'm going to be my better self, which is what you're calling on all of us to be, I have to recognize that I've got a really long list of my own version of, do you have a lint brush for my mom? (laughs) And like, that must be kind of painful. And what will, um, what can I, all the things I can do with my energy if I just let that go? Yeah. Well, you know, what I usually ask people is what, what do you do and how effective has it been? And most of the time <laughs> we can say that we need to try something different because all our attempts to, to manage and control have <laughs> are usually not that effective, you know? So if that's, if that's the, the motivator, then great, you know, do something different because what you're currently doing doesn't seem to have a lot, whole lot of influence on, you know, on your parent. Totally. But that also makes me think about how what we were just saying about the family dynamics and how we get so used to this is the point where so-and-so gets upset and leaves, or this is the point, you know, that whatever those patterns are. And then it makes me think, even with the ways that we again and again try to change someone else and they don't work, there is like some comfort in that, right? It's like, these are the, this is our relationship. This is how we play this game. Mm -hmm. And there is something, it's pretty wild to be conscious of it and then unplug from that because you don't know what happens next then, um, because we're out of the pattern. Yeah, often it will raise the anxiety. People expect things to calm down when you start acting differently, but it actually does the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Because you're doing something different. You know, in my book, I talk about you've taken yourself off autopilot, and that's really scary. <laughs> it is really scary. So I want to talk about the, you, you discussed the anxiety of progression. So let's progress there, Kathleen. What, what is the anxiety of progression? Because that is the thing that is getting me the most tripped up these days. Yeah, I, well, the anxiety of progression is being willing to not do what you would normally do in the moment to calm things down. You know, so if if you if you email people instead of have a face to face conversation with them because it's scary or if you, you know, tell your spouse how to load the dishwasher, you know, (laughs) the anxiety progression is sitting there and watching them do it, you know, the wrong way, (laughs) you know, and it's just being willing to to put up with the temporary anxiety that comes with being a self, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think when you can recognize that that's what it is, it seems it seems like it's not going to kill you. You know, it's uncomfortable, it's not ideal, but it it feels like an emotion that's that's going to pass, you know, if you can kind of hang in there. But and I also think on a a bigger level, like I am so comfortable working really hard in this very controlled environment. And whenever I have to step out of that, or, you know, because it's January, we everyone writes down their goals and and you want to get after it. But then there is the anxiety of progression of like, okay, then you start getting some yeses or there's there, you know, you gotta put yourself out on the ledge. Mm-hmm. And that can be so, so scary. And I forget how scary it is until I'm like 
standing on that diving board by myself again. <laughs> what suggestions do you have? Because it's the only way any of us can change and change for the better, but it's it's still scary as hell. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just human nature to want to control people's responses to us, you know, as we're growing and changing. And like that example you just gave, you know, if you're doing something bigger or different than what you would normally do, we are just so honed in on how people are going to respond to it. You know, we mm-hmm. lose fo- we lose the focus on ourselves. Uh, which yeah. is what happens a lot of the time, you know, that's that instinct to want to reach out and control and manage everyone. Uh, and when we're doing what we we normally do, we're, we know kind of how to do that because we can expect how people are going to respond mm-hmm. to us. But if we're doing something different, that's a little bit truer to kind of the person we're trying to be, it's, it's unknown territory. You don't, <laughs> you don't know how people are going to respond. Um, and so you're on the lookout for it even more so. You're going to be more sensitive to people's reactions when you're trying to be the person you want to be. And that can really distract you from doing that work. Yeah. What if the fear is, is a rejection? So for me personally, with one goal I have, it's like, okay, well, then I'll have to reach out to this person to ask for this thing. And then that, so then the voice in my head is, well, you know, then I'm going to seem, I hate asking for things. It's going to put out this other person. I'm going to seem like I'm out of my depths and I shouldn't ask for this thing, or I do get to the next step, but then they're going to realize that I'm not qualified. They'll probably listen to the very beginning of this episode where I admitted that I (laughs) messed up our recording. (laughs) You go through all those fears, then what? How do I do it anyway? Well, I mean, I have two thoughts. The first is that uh, it, having kids can be such a great motivator. You know, I, this is not my quote, but I remember a colleague telling me once, you know, who better than your parents to teach you that rejection and disappointment are manageable? <laughs> and how, you know, what a gift it is to a child to have a parent who kind of you know, just goes with it and kind of rides the waves Mm -hmm. of rejection, you know? So if it's not enough to motivate yourself, I think having a child who sees you in the middle of that is a really cool thing to remember. Um, But then the second thing that I always encourage my clients to do is to just have some guiding principles for themselves about what it is they're committed to doing regardless of the response, you know? And those are a couple things that I, like I have a few written down, I keep them taped to the back of my phone. They're just things I want to remember in the moment when I don't necessarily want to take a risk or do something new. You know, one of my principles is, you know, pursuing a creative life regardless of people's reactions. And if I can kind of hold on to that statement and remember that that's my job and nothing else, (laughs) uh, that can help me kind of take those risks um, because it puts the focus back on me and, and not other people's responses or You know, another principle that I have is to be responsible for myself, but to also step back and let people do the same for themselves. And so if I feel myself trying to reach out and control other people's thinking or Mm -hmm. or their behavior, you know, I go back to that principle and go, no, this is this is what I'm trying to do every day. And so I think just having a couple sentences written down of, okay, this is how I want to pursue this. Uh, this step in my career or this, you know, this relationship can be really useful for people. Because when you get anxious, all of that great thinking flies right out out Mm -hmm. the window and you forget it. If you don't have it written down and in front of your face, 
uh, it's going to be really hard to to access that when you're when you're in um, a tense situation. I really love the idea of having it taped to the back of your phone. I've never thought of that or seen it. I love that. Yeah, I mean, um, we always have our phones. So. Oh, you know what's so funny though? In yeah. a weird way, because I just flipped my phone over as though I would suddenly see my guiding principles. But <laughs> what's crazy is on the back of my phone, I have a uh, a clear case, and on the back, it's my business card for Atomic Mom. So it says. Trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, which is the last thing I always say in each episode. So in a way, I guess I have started that homework. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, this lovely trait of many human beings, you know, including myself, especially myself, of wanting to control other people's reactions to, you know, everything really, but like to myself or what I'm doing. And it made me think of the, towards the end of the book, you share that your father suffered from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And I have not delved into codependence, but I am curious about it. And I'm wondering what your relationship with your father's alcoholism, how that manifested into this work. Sure. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily use the term codependence, but there is a lot of you know, research about adult children and alcoholics, right? <laughs> they tend to want to control their environment, but they don't want it to be uh, unpredictable, right? And I think that can come from the experience of having a parent who maybe was acting unpredictably or um, wasn't necessarily responsible for themselves at times because of, you know, the addiction. So, you know, we are products of our families, right? And people emerge in different roles uh, trying to to manage the anxiety in the room, you know, and I think um, also just being a, an an only child, o- oldest children and only children tend to want <laughs> they tend to be over functioners. Um, yeah, just it's, it's, yeah. Old- <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I'm an only child between my parents, but then I'm also the eldest with my half brother and half sister uh, well, through my go. dad. But yeah, <laughs> so I guess I get to be a double overachiever. <laughs> Yeah. Or or over function. You call it over functioning, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what you just said. That was, I had never heard that phrase. And I just, I was like, oh my God, I'm so predictable. (laughs) Especially when you talk about when we start over functioning. And of course, anytime there is any stress in my life, I will start doing everybody else's homework for them. Yeah. It's like, it's a real problem. It's it's yeah. a it's a real turnoff in my relationships. <laughs> Let's just say that. You know, it it's it is scary to do the opposite, but I think in the long term, it's just such a relief to let everyone be responsible for themselves. <laughs> uh, and to see that to let I call it sort of letting yourself be surprised by people's capability because yeah. people are really more capable than you give them credit for a lot of the time. Um, and so just, you know, being able to step back and let people surprise you in that way is difficult at first, but once you can see them do it, it's so great to not be responsible for, for everyone else. So you were writing this book while you were pregnant. You share towards the end that you had a complication after giving birth. And so you had to spend a couple extra nights in the hospital by yourself, which was very trying for you. I love that you share that you just watched old episodes of The Office. <laughs> what have been the biggest lessons 
with your own child when it comes to calming down? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously having a a kid is a big motivator for working on your own ability to to regulate your emotions. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and but you want to you it's so easy to assume that there is distress when your child feels distress or is acting distressed, right? You just that anxiety, that distress is contagious. You know, you absorb it so quickly. And so my challenge with my daughter for me has been to just step back and go, you know, like I said earlier, is, is there a fire? You know? mm-hmm. um, it is my job to calm myself before I calm her. You know, even if that, that, if I only have five seconds, you know, that is worth, you know, by the time I'm walking to her room to go get her, right. That is my opportunity to calm myself because that is so much more useful for her than an anxious, you know, someone with directing all their anxious attention at her. Right. Um, and so just remembering that, you know, you know, it's cliche, but putting on my own oxygen mask first is, is such a help to her um, and to me to help me be able to see the reality, you know, of the problem versus my imagination or, or the what ifs. I'm always thinking of parenting and my own relationship with anxiety as well. Like in terms of sports psychology, it just seems to be like the weird way that I um, lens that I see this stuff through these days. And I'm curious, like, okay, pretend I'm a sports psychologist. <laughs> when you, I say this to an actual psychologist, way to go, Ellie. Oh my God. <laughs> this is me attempting to overfunction. You are walking towards your daughter's room. And those are, you know, those couple of moments to collect yourself and calm down. Can you walk us through what are those thoughts or what are you doing physically? in order to do that? Yeah. Well, I, one thing I do will just scale it. You know, I, if you want to do one to 10, one to a hundred to go, what, um, I remember, um, what after, uh, nine 11, they had the, like the colors of the, the warnings. Right. So, mm. you know, it was going from like blue to red or something. Mm-hmm. You could use colors, colors if you wanted to, but just asking myself what on a scale of one to 10, what is the scenario? And how do I respond in a way that reflects that? Um, you know, because um, if I'm, you know, letting her cry a little bit when she's sleeping or um, letting her try and figure something out first, you know, with eating before I snatch it and just do it for her, right? Um, just kind of gauging uh, numerically uh, how how distressing a situation is can be really useful for me to kind of alter my response or tailor it to her. Um, and how do you find that distance for yourself? Like sometimes it's really hard for us to differentiate. We start thinking the way that our body is physiologically reacting, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, it feels like it's a 10. So then you say 10, even though reality check, it's actually like a three. Um, so how can you trust what your brain says in terms of what that scale is? Or do you just yeah. make that 10 so drastic and dramatic that it <laughs> automatically feels okay? Sort of like this weekend at the ER when my daughter got this big black medical boot after five hours of waiting at the ER. But I had that time to really think about my 10, which is that her foot was broken. And it wasn't. So it was like, oh, it was a three. Right. It was a three. And then I felt great <laughs> about it. Well, I don't know if this answers your question exactly. But one question that I ask myself is, 
is what I want to do about helping her or is it about calming me down? And (laughs) if it's about calming me down, often that will get in her way of kind of growing and learning to be a person, you know? Yes. And so that's the motivation is if I can see how I'm getting in her way um, by, by my action of trying to calm myself down, then it's a little bit easier to kind of put up with that that physical, that physiological reaction. Um, because I, it's my job to kind of learn to put up with that anxiety in the moment Mm -hmm. as a parent. Um, if it's inhibiting her learning to be, you know, a person too. That is such good advice for any anxious mothers, especially on the playground. It's like this idea of a, well, if I just take her off the steps, right. Versus, or, or, or I could shadow her. And if she's safe, let her figure out how to go up the steps herself. Yeah. And I'll and I'll spot her and I'll deal with the uncomfortable feeling in my stomach of like, oh God, what if she slips? <laughs> yeah, asking yourself, if I did this every time, what is the what is the cost? You know, what is the long term cost of of me uh intervening in this way? It might not make a big difference once or twice, but if it's how you continue to be respond if it's how you continue to respond, it can really get in the way. I'm wondering if you are open to sharing a little bit about your mom. Yeah. So um, my mother died when I was 19. I was a sophomore in college and she was diagnosed with cancer, but had a heart attack very soon afterwards. And, you know, that's something I think that affects uh, how I understand myself as a parent. And it's, it affected my anxiety when I had a child, you know, knowing what it feels like to lose your mother, all of a sudden I was terrified, you know, of my daughter having to deal with the same thing at a much younger age. And it really got in the way sometimes of me seeing the reality. You know, I had some medical complications, but it was nothing super serious. Right. But in my head, I raised the stakes because that had been my experience. Right. Um, and so that was a hard thing to do, to be able to kind of look at our relationship differently and not just transplant the past onto the present or onto the future, which is what we do a lot of the time in our families. Well, yeah. I think that I hear from so many mothers where, you know, death, God, there's something also about just the postpartum period. Maybe mm-hmm. it's because something, I mean, I probably shouldn't even try to guess as to the reasons why, but I guess, you know, biologically it's so we're so connected. Um, but also, again, yeah, to have your heart outside your body for the first time in your life um, mm-hmm. and to realize all that's at stake, I think those fears of death are a lot of women uh, have them, during, especially during those early years, um, but especially when we're so sleep deprived in those early months. How did you calm yourself? You know, was it speaking to other therapists? What did you do? Because obviously that would open up, you know, the trauma of losing your own mom. Sure. I mean, talking to people definitely helped. I think also just not trying my very best. And I definitely failed at this at times, but trying my best not to beat myself up for being so hyper vigilant. <laughs> because mm. like you said, it's the the chemistry is all there, right? You're you're hyper vigilant for a reason. That is an evolutionary thing that serves a purpose, right? Mm. (laughs) Um, And so just not being, 
I, I would get frustrated with myself because my husband, you know, could stay in touch with the reality a little bit better than I could. And I would go, why, how can he, why can he do it? And, (laughs) and it's harder Mm -hmm. for me, but you know, that's, that's the answer. The, The same things weren't happening to his body and his brain that were happening to mine. And so I think just being willing to kind of accept that that's par for the course, not that you shouldn't get help if you need it, uh, but just to realize that it is going to be that much harder uh, when all of those hormones are sort of activated. You talk in the book about how you have, you know, your phone is sort of a great indicator of your relationships and like, what do you do to self-soothe? And I realized I have... um, my voicemail is completely full because I never listen to my voicemails, but I keep them in case the person dies so that I have their voice. Um, so what's that? So I think there's some distancing there, but then they're still like holding on. Can you please diagnose me in two seconds with that one? But <laughs> I do the same thing. Really? I save my voice. Yeah, I save my voicemails of people who are important to me because I want to have that that available to me. I think that's a human thing. Or maybe okay. there's something wrong with both of us. <laughs> What's the deal with uh, seeing procrastination as a relationship problem? Yeah. So I think so often we label it as a character flaw, right? Mm-hmm. That if we, we ha- or we haven't found the right time management book yet mm-hmm. to teach us how to be like productive machines. When in reality, when we sit down to work on a project or think about a project, we have this sort of imaginary audience in our brain, you know, and it's useful to ask yourself, okay, who's in the audience? Is it, you know, your boss? Is it your family? Is it that random person from high school you were always trying to be better than, (laughs) you know, uh, and just realizing that people are going to respond and react to your work, or you might imagine how they were are responding. And that mm-hmm. gets in the way of you sitting down and just trying to do what, you know, you're trying to do to be, uh, to do your best work. And so realizing that that's just part of it and that you kind of have to set aside those voices and let people ha- be responsible for themselves, respond how they're going to respond, um, and to turn your attention back to what it is you're trying to do. But I think just recognizing that, uh, the anxiety present in relationships affects you know, how well you can work on your goals or achieve a task or finish a project can be really useful for people. Gosh, where can our listeners find you? Yeah, so um, they can find my website, uh, kathleensmith.net. And uh, I write a weekly newsletter called The Anxious Overachiever. Uh, That's free for people. So they can subscribe there if they want. Oh, yeah, that'll Uh, speak to a lot of us, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I'm on Twitter at fangirl therapy. Oh, I love it. Uh, thank you so much. I feel like a lot of our, you know, if you listen to a parenting podcast that interviews a lot of experts, there's a high chance that you're an overfunctioner. And, <laughs> uh, and I feel like, you know, it's so nice to have found a new ally, uh, in our attempts to become our best selves. So thank you so much, Dr. Kathleen Smith. Thank you so much, Ellie. Okay, listeners, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can find us at iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. You can help support the production costs of the podcast because we pay for the platform that we share our 250 episodes on and our sound engineer and our production assistant. Um, So if you want to help chip in with the production costs, you can buy something in our shop. Go to atomicmoms.com backslash shop. 
We have a limited edition collaboration with Madeline Donahue, including these beautiful prints that are signed by her, as well as uh, T-shirts and tanks. Okay, everybody, don't forget to reach out on Instagram at Atomic Moms. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm-hmm.